Now we turn to the scripture that we read today in John's Gospel, which uh, teaches us about the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. The incarnation, of course, word it means the enfleshing, the coming in human flesh of the eternal Son of God is coming into this world. And I want to think about, consider uh, this incarnation of the Son. First of all, I would call it the greatest miracle. We've been talking about miracles this morning, and we've been talking about the miracle of new birth, that God comes in Christ uh, by his power to transform our lives. And of course, that is a marvelous, great miracle that any of us can experience. Now, the Bible is full. It's a book of miracles. Book after book of the Old Testament, we're referring to Jesus in the New Testament, but book after book of the Old Testament, we see the most amazing things happening. And chapter after chapter in the Gospels and into the Acts of the Apostles, it's filled with extraordinary miracles. I don't know what you would choose as your number one greatest miracle in in human history. Maybe the parting of the Red Sea to allow the people of Israel to escape uh, the pursuing Egyptian chariots and army. Maybe the provision of daily manna, a 40-year-long miracle that God performed for the people during their time in the wilderness, feeding a whole nation for 40 long years. Or maybe the creation of the universe itself in six days with its billions of galaxies, its innumerable stars and planets. And not only the creation of it, but second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, year by year, the unceasing miracle of God sustaining and upholding this universe in all its movement. Or maybe one of Jesus' many miracles. Or what about the resurrection of Jesus himself from the tomb? When we think about it, the miracles of the Scripture, well, the choice is endless. It goes on and on. From the very beginning of human history, we're left with a never-ceasing sense of wonderment before our great God. Now, I would contend this morning that the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of the incarnation. And I say is the miracle of the incarnation, not was the miracle of the incarnation, because I would also contend that the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, having taken our human nature, having assumed our flesh and blood into his own person, that that miracle has never ceased. It continues to this very day. And it will continue. The miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God. What an astounding fact that is. As one theologian has put it, one commentator and writer, that in Christ all the majestic glory of God should dwell in harmonious union with a finite man. That's something to think about. And it's not just a theologian who says that. That's the testimony of God's own word. 
because the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, in him, that is in Jesus, in the man of Nazareth, in the man Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, that, that should astonish us. And I readily confess that I cannot fully comprehend that. How can that be? Surely the glory of God cannot be contained in any created form. Surely the glory of God would, would overwhelm human nature. We read, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 27, Solomon having built that new temple to the Lord, that magnificent temple in all its splendor, and then he offers a prayer of dedication for the temple to the Lord. And in the course of that prayer, he says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? It's a question. Then he said, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. Now, I don't know about you today, but somehow I can more readily consider God dwelling in a temple than consider God dwelling in a human body, human form. And yet, and yet the Scriptures testify to that very fact, to that very miracle in the passage we read. The Word of God, that is the eternal Word who was with God, says John, who was God, who is God, became flesh. That eternal Word through whom all things were created and there is nothing in creation that was not created by him, he became flesh and dwelt amongst us full of grace and truth. And we have beheld his glory, says John, Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, uh, what he's referring to there, he may be referring to the miracles that Jesus performed, the glory of God in those miracles. He may be referring to the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He may be referring to the resurrection of Jesus. Or all these things put together, we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And they beheld that glory in the man Jesus of Nazareth. What an astounding thing that is. Charles Wesley, hymn writer, put it like this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, then veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Heal the incarnate deity. Charles Wesley was trying to express in human language this greatest of all miracles. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Heal the incarnate deity. What can we say to that? What can our response be? Well, I think first response is we scratch our heads in, in awesome wonder at it all. The creator of this universe humbles himself to be found in the fragility and vulnerability of an infant. We sang that hymn. 
joy has dawned upon the world, promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled, hope for every nation. And that's what Zechariah spoke about. I quoted that passage at the beginning. Zechariah speaks of this uh, Son of God, who would be the hope for every nation. Hands that set each star in place, shaped the earth in darkness. Cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. What a savior. What a friend. What a glorious mystery. Once a babe in Bethlehem, and now the Lord of history. This fact, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh, this is surely the all-encompassing miraculous event in the history of the whole world. It was anticipated from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, where God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, that one would come who, who, who would be the Savior, the Redeemer, the Restorer, the seed of the woman. And that promise was, was uh, held in the hearts of the people throughout all the millennia, throughout all the generations of God's people, until, as the apostle makes clear in, in the New Testament, that seed is Christ the seed of the woman who should come. It was anticipated from the beginning. It was prepared throughout redemptive history from the beginning. As we read the scriptures of the Old Testament, and, and, and God, as it were, unfolding his purposes and his plans with his people Israel throughout history, throughout redeeming history, redemptive history. And it was heralded and it was prophesied across the centuries in the Old Testament until in the fullness of time it really happened. At the appointed time, God's appointed time, and at the appointed place in human history, as Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. What a miracle of grace that is. God come down amongst us that we might know the embrace of divine love and mercy. Moreover, this Jesus, this Son of God in human flesh, crucified, then risen, and now exalted in glory, arrayed in kingly majesty at God's right hand, invested with all power and all authority, this Jesus <coughs> remains man. He remains God incarnate. And he will continue to be man throughout eternity. You will never read anywhere in the scripture that Jesus has led aside or shed his human nature, and he never will. Matthew Bridges, who wrote that hymn, Crown him with many crowns, he writes, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side. He's asking us to lift our eyes and faith heavenward. He's asking us to behold his hands and side, Jesus' hands and side. He says, rich wounds, yet visible, that is still visible above, in beauty glorified. 
the greatest of all miracles, the enfleshing, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, become man. Second thing, the incarnation, which we have already just touched on there, the incarnation is from eternity to eternity. The Dutch theologian Hermann Babink has written this. He said, if Christ is the incarnate word, and of course he believes Christ is the incarnate word, then he says the incarnation is a central fact of the entire history of the world. Then too, it must have been prepared for before the ages and have its effect throughout eternity. From eternity to eternity. I suppose that when we think about the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, we naturally think of Bethlehem. We think of his birth. We identify the incarnation with his being born in Bethlehem. Now, I believe it's important that we do not confine Christ's incarnation to one moment in time or to one place, whether it's Bethlehem. And we know the, uh, the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds, to you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Or perhaps more accurately or precisely, we might be inclined to identify the incarnation of the Son of God with the miraculous conception in the womb of Mary. We may rightly, we may rightly argue that the miraculous aspect of that event was not so much the birth of Jesus, the, actually, the actual delivery of the child in Bethlehem was no doubt a very normal birth process. The miraculous aspect was the virginal conception in the womb of Mary in Nazareth when the Holy Spirit came upon her. That was the miraculous aspect of the incarnation. That being said, we ought not to think of the incarnation as limited, confined, restricted in some way to any one place or one time whether Nazareth or Bethlehem. Now, why do I say that? Well, consider this. Who is it that receives the covenant sign of circumcision at eight days old? Well, it is the incarnate Son of God. Who is it that we see being presented in the temple in Jerusalem after 40 days and welcomed and worshipped by Simeon and Anna in the temple? Well, it is the incarnate Son of God. Who is it we see debating amongst the teachers and the elders in the Jerusalem temple when he was 12 years old? Well, it is the incarnate Son, increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. That's the incarnate Son. Who is it we see receiving baptism at the hands of John in the River Jordan? It's the incarnate Son. 
is the incarnate Son of God who's been tempted in the wilderness, who's engaging in public ministry, who is preaching and healing and performing miracles. It's the incarnate Son who we see in the courts of Pilate and Herod, tried and abused and crucified. Who is it that rises from the tomb? It's the incarnate Son. Son of God in the flesh. Who is it appearing to his disciples and teaching them about the kingdom of God over a period of 40 days? It's the incarnate Son. It's the incarnate Son that they see ascending in the clouds of heaven. It is Jesus incarnate. It is the Son of God incarnate that ascends in the clouds of heaven. And if we lift up our eyes in faith, to the throne of glory, to the divine throne. Who is it that we see in the midst of the throne? Well, it is the incarnate Son of God interceding there for us before the throne of God. And it is the incarnate Son who will return with the clouds of heaven to judge the world and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. You get the picture there and all of that? The incarnation has a history. It's a history that transcends the earthly life of Jesus. The time that he spent on this earth, it transcends it, though it includes that. Because the incarnation was decreed in the eternal counsel of God. It was planned before the ages. It had its preparation throughout human history. It was historically realized in the conception by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. And it has its continuation all the way to the throne of glory, to God's throne. And it will last throughout the future ages of eternity. In that sense, we may truly say that the incarnation of the Son of God is from eternity to eternity, decreed in eternity past, continuing throughout eternity to come. You see, the coming of the Son of God in human flesh was never an afterthought of God. It was never an emergency measure that God was somehow forced to adopt in the aftermath of the fall and of human sin. Not at all. It was decreed in the eternal counsels of God. So the incarnation of the Son of God is the supreme miracle, the greatest miracle that this world would ever know. And it is a miracle from eternity to eternity. And thirdly, it's a miracle that guarantees his abiding presence with us. The incarnation assures us of the Lord's abiding, continuing presence with his people. That was a divine intention from the very beginning of creation. That was God's intention. We see God walking in the cool of the Garden of Eden. He was there dwelling with our first parents, 
and the intention of God to dwell with man was reiterated time and time again to his people Israel throughout the Old Testament. This is what it says in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. God says through Moses to the people of Israel, I will make my abode among you. I will make my abode among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you. Echoes of Eden there, wasn't there? I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Or the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, 26 to 28. The Lord says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will bless them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary, my dwelling place, in the midst of them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations, the nations shall know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forevermore. And then there's that passage that we read at the beginning, Zechariah 2, marvelous, marvelous passage of Scripture. Zechariah 2, 10 and 11, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come. Zechariah had been sent to encourage the people in the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed many years before uh, in the Babylonian captivity and so on. And people had come back to rebuild Jerusalem, restore the temple, but things had lapsed. They'd become discouraged. And Zechariah and Haggai, the prophet, prophets, were sent to, to encourage the people and to give them fresh vision. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, says the Lord. I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is the incarnate, the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking of how the Lord God would send him to his people, and not only to them, but it would be thrown wider to the nations, that God would dwell amongst them. And the nations, people from the nations would be brought in to the people of God. And we know when that was fulfilled, historically. It was fulfilled in Christ. The one who comes, the one who is sent by God. Just as, Zechariah, just as he says in Zechariah 2. Now that's a flavor. That's a wee flavor of the divine promises, of God's intention to presence himself among his people. And these promises ultimately fulfilled when the eternal word came to dwell and tabernacle amongst men, full of grace and truth, and so on. John 1, 14, he has tabernacled amongst us. The word means he has pitched his tent. He has pitched his tent amongst us. This tent of human flesh. 
That's why the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, uh, as it were, uh, take, takes uh, the words of Jesus taken from the Old Testament and also reiterated in Hebrews chapter 10. This is why when he came into the world, that is, when the Son of God came into the world, he says, a body thou hast prepared for me. A body. In which he shall remain forever. Being made like us in every respect except for sin, he has personally experienced the human journey from birth to death to resurrection and beyond resurrection to exalted glory. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he remains. What theologians call the concomitance of God, meaning the alongsidedness of God. He is alongside us. The Lord pitched his tent amongst his ancient people Israel. He journeyed with them from Egyptian slavery to promised land. He was present with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He dwelt amongst them in tabernacle and in temple, the Shekinah glory of God filling the Holy of Holies, continually witnessing to the special presence and the localization, you might say, of God at any given time and place and eventually taking on that permanent reality in the eternal word, tabernacling amongst men. The eternal word made flesh. And John, of course, witnesses to the final glorious scene when the curtain finally falls on human history and, and we presently know it in our own human experience. Revelation 21 and 22, where he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, and God says, I will come, I will dwell amongst you. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Uh, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament taken up for the new creation when we dwell together and he dwells with us in a new world. As God's people today, we are on a journey too. We have been emancipated, if you're a believer day, today, we have been emancipated from sins and enslavement. We're traveling to that promised new heaven and new earth. And along the way, in this world, whatever providence, whatever God in his providence has in store for this, we know this. We know that our Savior, who walked this way before us, also walks the road with us. I will never leave you, he says, nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and then forevermore. Oh, page or two there yet. We'll go as quick as we can through this. There's a euphemism commonly in vogue in our native Ulster, isn't there, when speaking of the Lord? People talk about the man above. For some reason or other, reluctant to speak or to use the name God or to speak of the Lord or Jesus, the person of the Godhead, I suppose it's generally in mind, is the Father. I never liked that, that term because it seems to me to denigrate God somewhat or at least suggest some sort of embarrassment 
and using the name of Jesus or the name of Father, the name of God, the name of the Lord. However, having said that, it does express a glorious reality. Even if people don't appreciate it when they use that term, the man above. And the glorious reality is this, that the one who occupies the highest place in the midst of the throne of God is none other than the man of Nazareth. Albeit in a glorified humanity, but humanity nevertheless, for his incarnation is permanent. The eternal son who took human flesh to become man will never cease to be man through eternity. And here's the amazing and here's the glorious consequence in all of this, because it has a glorious consequence. That the exaltation of Jesus, the man Jesus, is the guarantee of the exaltation of every believer. When you and I shall be perfectly conformed, body and soul, to the image of Christ. When, as John says in his first epistle, we shall be like him. Or Paul in Philippians 3, where he says, we will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Jesus' high priestly petition, his prayer, you remember John 17, he says, Father, glorify thou me in thy presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world began. That prayer has been granted to Jesus. He has been glorified again in the presence of the Father. And then glorious consequence. It's also guaranteed in and with Jesus Christ to every child of God. Jesus declares in John 17, in his prayer to the Father, he says, The glory which you have given me, Father, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's an astounding thing, isn't it? Amazing grace. <coughs> In the place of supreme power and resplendent glory is the man Jesus, our representative head, our redeemer, in whom and with whom all the blood-bought children of Adam become heirs and joint heirs of the glory. What a saviour. Are you one of those blood-bought heirs of glory? See, that's the reality for every believer here and now. And with the Apostle Peter, we rejoice in it. We have been born again, he says, Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled. It fades not away. It's kept in heaven for you. And you are being kept by the power of God for that salvation, for the fullness of it that will be revealed in the last day. And then we will know the full glory and the exhilarating joy that we have yet to experience. How awesome that surely is. One other writer has put it like this. He says, go to the spiritual heart of this created universe, you will find a man. Go to the place where angels bow who never fell, you will find a man. Go to the very center of the manifested glory of the invisible God, you will find a man. True human nature, one of our own race, mediating the glory of God. In heaven today, 
we have a mediator, an advocate, who is our fellow man, who is one of us. Yes, he is God. He never, he never laid aside his deity. He is God, but he's also man, who is one of us, who is on our side, who feels for us, who is for us, Jesus of Nazareth. How blessed we are. Therein lies the certainty of our present and future glorification. It is in Christ. It is in Christ alone. Our hope is found in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe. Now that's the crunch, or there's the crunch. Are you in Christ today by faith? Are you in him, one with him, by faith? Are you united to Christ in bonds that eternity will never erase or destroy, that death cannot touch, that hell cannot, cannot change, that the devil can, cannot accuse, that you are in a union with Jesus, the eternal Son of God, that can never, ever alter? A union by faith in him, trusting in him as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of eternity. Unlimited by the categories of space and time as we are, all of human history from creation to new creation has spread out before you. You are the Lord of history. We praise you that your incarnation, though historically realized at a time in, in space and time, yet was so graciously conceived from eternity as a means whereby we creatures of time and space may through faith come to share in your risen glory, both now and for eternity come to come. Amen.